All right, y'all. Hey, hello. Hi, how are you? This is Weez. No, you gotta do that again. <laughs> you can't start like that. Why not? This is an unscripted conversation. <laughs> this is what I got for them today, okay? This is what they're gonna get. You gotta do a little better. vulnerable and authentic. You sound bored. I'm tired. <laughs> hi, hello, hello, hi. <laughs> All right. Mm. You know this coffee kick. Shake it out. Hey y'all, what's up? Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 15 of That's Not How That Works. As promised, we are bringing you the origin story of our very own Wheeze. Stay tuned, check it out, and make sure to let us know what you think. Hey y'all, what's up? Welcome to episode 15 of That's Not How That Works. If you heard our mini-sode, you will know that today we are starting our mini interview series where Weez and I are going to just share a little bit about our backgrounds. Today we'll be hearing from my homegirl, Weez. Woohoo. Yeah, she's so <laughs> excited. She's so excited. I'm so <laughs> She's so excited about sharing her. I am. No, this is good. This is, this is, you know, leading by example. You gotta, you gotta put yourself in uncomfortable places when you, when you want to lead by example. Absolutely, absolutely. So we, we are just gonna start at the beginning. Okay. Just share with our listeners a little bit about your background, where you grew up. Just kind of give us some insights about where you're coming from. Yeah. So I am San Francisco Bay Area, born and bred. So for those that don't know, that's uh, Berkeley. Oakland. I am a first generation American. I have immigrant parents from Africa. They're from the Berber tribes, which are an indigenous tribe to North Africa. Well, they were like North and West, but they moved a lot. They're nomadic. So, you know, they were kind of all over. Um, And then, you know, colonization and such. So they, they got displaced. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so my parents came here in the late seventies. They didn't think that they were going to stay. They were just going to be here for a little bit. The idea was like, maybe we can, you know, stack some bread, do a little bit better for ourselves and then, and then go back home. Um, but then they started having kids in the eighties. Also, there was a lot of civil war, um, going on back home because we didn't get our independence until 1962. So there was a lot of civil war, coup d'etats. It just wasn't safe to go back. So my parents decided to stay here. So I grew up in the Bay. I am Bay Area born and bred as far as America goes. I spent a lot of my childhood back home. Um, So a lot of time in Africa, a lot of time in different parts of Europe. English is actually my third language. Um, I speak French uh, first. I went to French schools as a child because we thought we were going to go back. And for those of you that don't know, most of North and West Africa was colonized by the French. So, and for a long time, that was the only language that was like legally allowed to be spoken in public. So you had to learn it. Yeah. So we would go back home a lot. Um, But as I mentioned, being war-torn in 91 we could no longer go back home so my parents were like all right well we're gonna stay here so yeah went to went to french schools um my parents did the absolute best that they could to try to keep us as connected to the quote-unquote the culture and the language and all of those things as possible which for me meant also understanding like my history the history of colonization um the history of genocide the history of of you know the political and economic displacement of people, um, power structures, things like that. So I was really, really young when I got radicalized. 
Um, (laughs) Yeah. So coming from that household, you know, um, combined with growing up in the Bay, um, I, I very quickly had a very like worldly, radicalized, politicized um, upbringing and education. So yeah, but my childhood was fun, like to be clear, like I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that we were poor. I didn't know we didn't really have money. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know those things because I was just a normal kid. Like we played outside, we got dirty. It was, it was the, you know, the eighties. So we didn't, you know, yeah, we had Nintendo, but like, it was like 12 of us on one Nintendo, you know, everyone in the neighborhood was playing and it was like the simpler time. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I still had a really fun childhood. My parents did as much as they could to to try to make sure that we, you know, we did get a childhood um, Mm -hmm. because that was something they didn't get. So, yeah, I mean, growing up in the Bay was hella fun, actually. It's not the Bay that it is today. There were a lot of other, like, black and brown kids. What a time to be alive, to quote Drake. (laughs) And your intro on a Drake quote, awesome. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit more about, like, this idea of, or the experience of growing up, with parents who really wanted to keep you connected to the culture and the difference between what you were being taught and what you were seeing kind of around you and like being raised next to kids who weren't getting that kind of awareness. Yeah. Yeah, Can, can you just talk about what that was like? But as a kid, it was just like, wait, but how do you not know these things? As a kid, it was very clear to me. We have systems of oppression. (laughs) White people seem to be the people that are continuously abusing the systems of oppression and are oppressing and abusing black and brown bodies for their own gain. Like literally as a kid, I understood that very fundamentally. That was just an aspect that I understood. For me, I understood that like my grandfather was in and out of, we didn't really know where he was, but like he has stories of, of torture and you know why he walks a little different. And it was like, oh, well the French had him and he would escape. And then he would go back and then they'd capture it. Like that, those were just very normalized to me. But on the flip side, I also did have the privilege of knowing, like I speak my language. I have that privilege. I have the privilege of, of the music and the clothing and culture and the food. Those are privileges I have. And for me, it was just like, while yes, there are these systems of oppression and these rare, really terrible things that are con- that constantly happen to black and brown bodies and like your family member might just get disappeared and you know that is what it is we also are so rich in culture and history and language and like mm-hmm. for me specifically like it was really important like the berbers were re- were really integral in a lot of in like shifting a lot of the history of Africa, well, for as long as they could, right? Because they were a tribe, because they were a tribe of warriors. Like we were the one of the, like I knew very young that we were one of the first tribes that had a female leader, like a female queen. We were a matriarchy. Um, and so I had this history and I had this, this notion of what, you know, now is kind of called like black excellence or like what's interesting is like this resurgence of this empowerment with Black Panther and like this notion of Wakanda and why that was so important Mm -hmm. for, you know, the culture in America now. I had the benefit and the privilege of having that as a kid. And I didn't know how important that was. And I didn't know what that meant. But what I knew was I come from a really long line of fighters. I come from a really long line of strong women that run shit. Like we get shit done. We, you know what I mean? Like we, we don't take anything lightly. Like it was just, 
it just, that's what it was. Yeah. Um, and so juxtaposed to the other kids, I was just like, well, how do you know that? We're, like, why don't you understand? We're great. Like, we're, we're the like birth of all humanity. Like we, she wouldn't be here if it wasn't for us. You know what I mean? Like I used to, as a kid, I used to say things like, well, Jesus wasn't white. Like that's not what he looked like. And of course, adults, mostly white adults were like, who the fuck is it? And I'm like, well, he wasn't because if you look at the Bible, da, 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 I'm like 12. Like if you look right. in the Bible and his description and blah, 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 blah. And also like, let's talk about the, how the way Christianity was spread and you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just because I understood the history. Part of it was my parents constantly telling us and reinforcing. And part of it was just me starting to notice things. It's probably why I majored in sociology, like starting to notice the way people moved and the way people behaved. And I was like, in order to understand the now, I got to understand the history. And so yeah. I would start to do a lot of my own research. But it was always really interesting for me because I just didn't get how no one else just didn't know. Right. right. And then I obviously got older and I figured out. Um, um, but as a child, I was like really bold at the mouth and really am like just super empowered. I was always super respectful, but I was just like, no, this is what it is. Like I was me now with less analytical abilities and way less fucks to give basically (laughs) very young. So you grow up, let's fast forward a little bit to like your coming of age, right? So right. you grow, you lived in Oakland or the Bay Area all your life? Yeah, until undergrad. Well, undergrad, I went to Berkeley. So up until graduating from college, yeah. And so, so you get to college and like college is really where people tend to kind of have this next level awakening and really start to make some decisions about who they're going to be and what they're going right. to stand for. Yeah. So what kind of conclusions did you come to? So that was actually me in high school. Okay. So, so you that, were fast-tracked. Uh, yeah, I was, I was definitely fast-tracked. Um, I also didn't have a choice. I always tested very high in like that. So that we have ISEE in, in California. I don't know if people have it other places, but in the eighth grade, you basically take the SAT and it's called the ISEE and tested really high. I also was somebody who didn't value traditional education. Like I thought it was bullshit because I looked at systems of education and the way that they were like used to indoctrinate us and all of those things. Um, But regardless, I like very early on was the racially ambiguous like token, you know, kid that came from, like my parents were teachers. They ended up doing like, we went from no money to like low middle class. Like my, my parents made, have made something of themselves at this point. You know, by the time I was in high school, we were, we were stable, but I wasn't, they weren't able to afford $30,000 a year for high school, but those were the high schools that were looking at me and like actively recruiting me. So I was recruited in, in middle school for these types of like Ivy league high schools, which meant that very young, I went right into the epitome of privilege. Like I can't even explain some of the things that I was like, I'm 13. I should, why do any of you have access to these things? And then you have things. So like the, my, my favorite explanation, like my favorite example is like, I'll never forget sophomore year in high school. This girl like crashed. I think she had like a Jag or something. And like, she crashed it. And her punishment was like, you're going to get a Mercedes. And I was like, well, I I walked to Bart, which is like our subway. I'm like, I walked to the subway. Like if my parents can give me a ride, don't. But if not, like it's subway or Bart to Bart to bus to up a hill. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like right. there wasn't like, I didn't get a car until I graduated from college. Cause I was like, Oh, I got to go be a real adult now. Like, right. 
you know, that was their punishment or on like, just honestly, everything that you think of when you think of really rich, spoiled white kids who have too much time and money on their hands, like a lot of drugs, like I knew, you know, kids that were like leisurely doing cocaine as freshmen in high school, like who never saw their parents and had full-time nannies who also barely spoke English and didn't want to get in trouble or ruffle feathers. So kids were running amok with way too much access to money. You know what I mean? Like just... I was just like, yo, this is wild. Like my sophomore year, we drove up to some girl's house in Tahoe that her parents owned, like just a bunch of high schoolers. And it was just like normal. Obviously my parents, sorry, mom, she probably is listening to this because she probably remembers me going on this trip. Like, yeah, there's parents. Yeah, there's totally going to be parents. The oldest person was her 17 year old older sister. You know what I mean? Like, and it was normal. All these kids were just like, oh, this is what happens. Like, this is fine. Yeah. So that was the kind of stuff like very early on that I was being exposed to, which then is coupled with total lack of awareness for their own privilege, for their position in society. But honestly, like really fucking kids. I don't talk to anybody I went to high school from. Mean. Um, Who, you know, they they reminded you that you were one of four students of color in the whole school and that you were a scholarship kid. And somehow that made you less than and all of those types of things. But high school was also, you know, it's, 9-11 like the Twin Towers so that was the first time in a long time that we had really seen this country be racialized and politicized and like towards one other obviously other than like just the status quo like in a really like openly outward Mm -hmm. form of hatred and so that was my sophomore year I like really found my voice and I shame on the college preparatory school in Oakland because that's where I went and I hope they hear this Shame on them for bringing in somebody who was labeled like a Bush advisor, a political advisor, who was sitting there trying to explain, we had this thing called forums on Tuesdays where we'd have like some really hoity-toity, high-powered somebody come in and talk to us about something. Mm -hmm. So after 9-11, this person comes in, he's trying to explain to us like the politics around the decisions that are being made in the administration and for this country. And he starts by trying to explain like, you know, Arab culture and Islam and all of these things. Now, mind you, I am not an Arab. But my family, a lot of them are Muslim. And so while I am not, you know, I'm a spiritual person, blah, 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 I have my own beliefs on, on religion and, and those types of things, I'm still very well versed. In, and also because when I went through my own belt with rejecting religion, I studied all of the religions Because right. I was like, okay, if I'm going to understand this, I need to study Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, everything. So this man is literally spewing just incorrect facts. Like if you Googled Islam 101, like he, he was just, it was just wrong. Like you didn't even have to have any sort of actual direct relation to know that like it says like the very first tenet is there's only one God and like he has prophets essentially, right? So like Muhammad is his prophet. Um, Jesus is his prophet, Abraham, da, 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 da. And so this man gets up there and he's like, so they consider Muhammad to be a God, which is like, if you say that is a fucking sin, like off top, just wrong. And I'm just like sitting there like, yo, this is, you're just spewing incorrect information. And so when it comes time to like question and answer, like I raised my, I don't, know, I don't even think it got time to question and answer. It was like, that was the moment where I knew. I'm yeah. like, I'm 14. You are an old ass white man who literally is somehow affiliated to DC and the administration. And I'm like, no, this is wrong. And if the information that is so readily available is wrong, then how can we believe or trust anything that you're saying about, you know, or any of your insight into larger issues? And naturally the school was like, hush. And I was like, nah, I'm gonna walk out then. It's that easy. And that, that was literally the moment, September 11th, like that week of my sophomore year. That was the moment where I was like, 
okay, like this is what it is. Yeah. Like just, and I was just so fearless in that moment. Like it was so clear to me that I was like, this is wrong. You are spewing inaccurate information and you need to be checked on that shit. Yeah. And granted, I'm like 15 at the time. So I don't necessarily have the high level. I was 14. This is in September. So I hadn't turned 15 yet. I don't necessarily have the high level you know, language to be able to, to dispute this educated or, you know, quote unquote, systemically educated man. But I was just like, nah, homie. Uh-uh. And that was literally how I became known at the, at, at the school. Like the year that I graduated is the year they were like, we need to hire a diversity and inclusion consultant because this chick has lit us the fuck up for the last four years. Well, I used to walk out of class. I had a history teacher. No, a math teacher. I'm sorry. A math teacher. So they tracked all the students of color into one math class. There was like math A and math B and math B was supposed to basically be like the stupid kids. But mind you, consistently we're all testing higher. In the entire senior class, there were only nine of us that identified as color, which is any black or brown body. And somebody goes, Dane, I'll never forget the homeboy Dane. Dane was like, how come all the black kids are in one group? And he goes, Louise is in your group. She's not black. And Dane is like, actually, she's blacker than all of us. And then Ricky was like, yeah, she's just been colonized by a lot of white people or like made some sort of smart comment, right? These are kids in Oakland. At mm-hmm. this point, we're 18. And he literally laughs, this white man from, I will never forget, from Boston, Massachusetts, first year in California. He literally laughs and he's like, well, if, if she is, then I am because Lucy, who is the mother of all civilization, was found in Africa. And so then Dane was like trying to reinforce a point. He was like, no, she like for real is. She like speak that shit and everything. He's like, I do too. And starts <gasps> like click, I swear to God, I can't make this shit up. This is in Oakland, California. Whoa. So I started arguing with him and then realized very quickly that you can't argue with someone that, to that, that, that is that ignorant. Mm-hmm. So I left math class and went and sat in the center of the quad right in front of the dean of student and the head of the school's offices. So they come outside and they're like, what's wrong? And I was like, don't talk to me. You can go talk to everybody in the class. Because I also knew that if I tried to tell my story, then it, you know, it just, I was angry. I didn't have the language, whatever, whatever. But like, that's, that's like, that's the shit that I do. So in high school, I learned very quickly, like, this is who I am. Like, I'm calling shit out. It's wrong. It's, it's racist. It's oppressive. It's all of these things, like anytime I saw the patriarchy at work, white supremacy at work, any sort of systems or dynamics of power, like I'm calling it out off top, period. So that happened for me in high school. So how do you go from, you know, that experience to years later, deci- what, what's the path from there to deciding that now this is something that you actually want to do for work? Because most of us aren't given that kind of option. Like you don't go to college to like leave college and become a race equity coach. Right. Right. That's not typically how that works. No, no. So in college, there were also a number of other events that occurred that then brought me to, into the realization of light skin, racially ambiguous privilege. And Again, you know, my formative years and then my high school experience and the, the decisions that I had made been, you know, I had made to like be vocal and to use my education as I'm like, cool, white people want to recruit me because I look good on their statistics. Like I'm going to get everything that I came from them. So I had already made those decisions. So when I got to college, that's why it made sense for me. I was like, I'm going to go major in sociology. So I want to study people. I want to like this. This is what makes sense. And then I had things that, you know, obviously... I realized light skin, racially ambiguous privilege and coupled with majoring in sociology, then I had all the language for it. 
so fast forward, I graduate, I go into corporate America, worked in music, sports, tech, like I did all of these things. And then that experience made me realize very quickly that it doesn't matter, like while there is privilege and while there is more and less privilege, you're still, you will still forever always just not be white mm -hmm. and you will forever not be a man. Yeah. And so what can I do? And so leading up to Michael Brown's death, I was grappling with a lot of these things. So like I started a nonprofit in St. Louis with my ex-husband and we were like, okay, how can we exploit the system? What can we do? Okay, well, we can start an athlete development program that is also an academic development program because if schools are only going to take our kids for their sports abilities, we're going to make sure that they can compete on the highest level in the classroom and on the field or on the court so that they can get scholarships for school, but still be able to compete academically, right? So they can get that degree, right? So I like, I very quickly started to find additional ways outside of corporate America that I could still like, quote unquote, do the work and help and give back and use that privilege. Um, and this was in St. Louis. So I had already had ties to St. Louis, you know, my ex is from St. Louis. Um, and so all of those things were, were leading up and then Michael Brown was killed and Everyone knows that story. Everyone knows what happened. Um, I was in St. Louis. Uh, so now we're in what I call the post-Ferguson era. Yeah. So in this post-Ferguson era, there was a switch that flipped for me. And it was like, I'm already doing this work, right? I'm volunteering at schools. I'm mentoring. Um, one of my, he's, he's, he's my family, like my cousin, Chris, he, we had a program, you know, where we were doing political education and tech education for kids, like for free. This is just what we were doing. Like we were already doing all of these things for free. And so, you know, in that post Ferguson era, I very quickly realized one, I can monetize this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's just the honest reality of it. I'm doing all of these things for free. And while some of them I continue to do for free to this day, right? Like working with the kids, mentoring, yeah. homework help, all of that. That's something that I will always do and give back to, to our communities in that way. But I quickly realized that I can monetize my skill set and I can actually coach and use my life experience and my education and all of these things and the trauma that I've endured. And even this, to me, this is the biggest skill set I have acquired in being a woman of color in this country and experiencing all of like the trauma and all of the, the pain that I have experienced is that I've never been broken. And I've learned how to process it. I've learned the tools to communicate effectively. I've learned how to hold space for other people. I've learned how to ask for boundaries. Those are things that are so crucial in any coach, but I think especially when you're doing work that can be really triggering. And mm -hmm. so when I realized I had the academic background and I also had my own lived experience and working through that pain and trauma, um, those two things coupled, I was like, I can help other people get to this point and they can be people of color or they can be white people who are just trying to do better mm -hmm. and understand their place in the system. And so when I, when I came to that point, when I came to that realization, because I was already having all these conversations for free with people, right? They were already coming to me. I didn't know I was a coach, right. honestly, until somebody else was like, you know that this is a thing. Like, right. you can make money. Another coach told me, they were like, you can monetize this. Like, why aren't you monetizing this? And I was like, oh, I can make this a job. Yeah. And like, that's, that's literally how I got here. Like I was already doing it. Like, and it's because very young, my commitment though it evolved and it, it changed as I experienced life, my commitment had been very quickly. And I learned that 
even in the juxtaposition of knowing that I had a privilege of having lineage and connection to the motherland and my tribe that my other black and brown brothers and sisters didn't have because of, you know, the, the distance in, in literally in years that, you yeah, know, yeah. they were removed, um, that it, it's my duty, like shame on me if I don't do it. Right. And so I, I made that commitment really young and I didn't even know I made it. Right. And that's how I got here. What are three things that you stand for? Like when you think about values. Yeah. So the very first thing that I stand for is protecting the marginalized. And I mean that in every way, shape or form. So that was in high school when like a senior was picking on a freshman. That's when I'm at coffee shops, like to this day when I'm at coffee shops and I see just something that doesn't feel right. That is something that my parents used to get on me all the time about. And rightfully so, because they were like, we're your parents and like, you're going to die. Like that was literally their concern. Their concern was like, you're climbing on freeway off ramps and shutting down freeways. Like you're standing in front of uh, like officers with guns, like you're going to die. Like we're going to get that call. Right. Um, And now they're just like, okay, like this is, this is where kid is. Like it is what it is, but that's probably my very first thing. Like whatever, whatever, however extreme or minute it is. Mm -hmm. Um, that's just like a human commitment. Like my attachment to humanity and my compassion, empathy for human beings will always be the first thing that drives me. So that's one, like that's the next thing would be kind of in that same vein is that fundamentally, no matter who the person is, right? So no matter their place in privilege or their place in oppression, I try to like strip that and see the person. So like I work really hard and it is, it is hard. Like I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, it's so easy. Right. But like when I'm sitting across from somebody like a white male who's holding a tiki torch and I vehemently like want to punch him in the mouth, like, you know, like I, I try to recognize and, and, and maintain a respect for his humanity, like for the person that he is. And that is less for other people than it is for me, because for a long time I was really consumed with the, like the negativity and the hate for what they represented. Right. And so that's more like a self-care thing is like I navigate the world seeing people as like trying to see their humanity, regardless of all the other layers of things like I see their humanity and I forgive them for their flaws. What what I consider flaws. Right. Because I'm being a racist is a huge fucking flaw. (laughs) Um, And then what was the question again? In three values. (laughs) Well, yeah, my three values. I don't know if I have a third one. So the first, yeah, protecting the marginalized, like always. Being a voice for the voiceless, I think is a better way to like say my first one. So that's like that acknowledging humanity will be my second value. And then my third value is more on, <laughs> this is when I'd be like, yo, I said like a hood rat. I'm like loyalty, honesty, like, no, but like that's, that like, that is my value system. My value system is like, I think that like transparency and honesty and like loyalty and like the, the third value is really just like the way that you show up for your people. And it's interesting. It actually ties back to this concept that we talked about last week of the tribe. Mm-hmm. But it's like, what kind of tribes person would I be? Right. So like my third value is always making sure that the people in my tribe know that I'm constantly doing my part in the tribe to, to maintain our, our overall like success and right. growth and like evolution. And so everything that embodies that. Now I know why we get along so well. (laughs) (laughs) And my last question is, what's your vision for the future? And like, I'd love to hear 
your vision for your own future? Like, you know, how, mm. how do you hope to live in the world in 10 years? Yeah. So in 10 years in like the perfect world, right? In like the plug and play, <laughs> yeah. really, really optimistic version of this world. <laughs> On the vision board. On the vision board. Um, we have some sort of like national platform, first of all. Like in, in 10 years, like people are go, it's going to be like Oprah and then like Wheezy and Trudy, like <laughs> off top. <laughs> I'm like so serious too. Um, but so that is like, first and foremost, like I want to be able to continue having these conversations on a large scale. I want to continue being a voice for the voiceless. I want to continue to be able to call out the shit that's wrong and, and have very authentic conversations about why it's wrong on a very public platform mm-hmm. and get paid for it because it does take time and energy and education and emotional labor and I should be compensated accordingly. Um, (laughs) But, you know, but um, the flip side of that is I want to create a life that feels free. And so that means maybe being able to record wherever the hell we want. I have this concept, this dream that I've always had as a child. And when I say like chase the summer, right? Because, you know, like summer moves depending on where you are in the world um, because of the equator science and uh but just being able to chase the summer like summer year round like I can be wherever and my future children I'll be able to like educate them in an environment and a world that celebrates them for their diversity you know in in a way and makes them feel safe and empowered in a way that this country doesn't currently um and so I don't know if that's I don't know what that looks like yet because I don't know where our world will be in 10 years Um, But that's my goal, at least, is to be able to give them that, you know, and then hopefully have a really dope partner that supports our show and everything that we do. Yeah. Um, You know, I'm simple. I'm simple, man. And then part of me is also like, I hope we don't have to continue having these conversations in 10 years because everything will be fixed. And instead, we'll be like talking about other high level fun stuff. I don't know. Yeah. That's not how that's not how that works. So there's always something. There's always something. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's wonderful. Do you have any like parting words for people? Like any inspirational quote or or, uh, anecdote that you'd like to share? No, honestly, like, it's funny. I always think about this because people that know me, people that I share with and that get to actually see the real me are like, you are the most fun loving, kind, ridiculous, supportive, like, person whatever like I would legit like die for the people that that are in my life like uh, or, or like you or your kids I'm like oh can I do some what's up like we ride you know like just that's just how I am and like I laugh a lot and I feel like laughter that's probably the like my inspirational quote is make sure that you are always laughing right because like that just brings joy but I would just say for everybody like try to find the humanity in other people so I bring up my example of like how I really am by nature, just funny and goofy and silly. And like, I have a unicorn onesie that I like, you know, that I enjoy. See. You've seen it. You've seen it. Um, like I'm, you know, I'm that person, but when I go out to the street, I, like I have to put an armor on and I have to put a mask on. And a lot of times that comes off with resting bitch face or that comes off maybe as like, you know, I get a lot of times my favorite thing that somebody said to me was, I thought only dark skinned women were supposed to be angry. Oh, oh yeah, that shit fucked me up. But my, I say that to say, I'm like, I'm not angry. Like, I'm not, but life and the world and the world that we live in forces me to put on this armor sometimes. And so 
me being a real life example of that, like try to see the humanity in people, you know, try to see past their armor when you engage with them and try to be more forgiving. Um, Cause we're all just doing our fucking best. Man. That's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Everybody appreciates it. Oh, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 15 of that's not how that works. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think about these stories that we're sharing with you. Because really, you know, that's what we're here for. We're here to engage and try to help folks do a little better. Word. So we'll see you. Stay, stay tuned for the next episode. We're going to switch seat right now. And we'll see what happens. All right. All right. Bye take guys. care, y'all. That wasn't so bad. Hey, y'all, what's up? Thank you for tuning in to episode 15 of That's Not How That Works. If you enjoyed Weez's story, please find us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Not How That Works. You can also send us an email to hello at nothowthatworks.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you do like what you're hearing, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. And if you can, leave us a written review. It'll help people find us. And remember, next time someone says, you do have to tell me your name and you have to tell me whether or not you live in subsidized housing because you're not allowing my baby to nap. You tell them that's not how that works. Oh, y'all haven't heard about Sidewalk Sally? I know, it's a lot to keep track of.